pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are back. And it we, is agreement. We are back, ready to angry after we got to see each other in person twice. But one was for a whole week. Yes. That was amazing, Michelle. Thank you for that trip. Yeah, both my kids just talk about it like it ran. They're like, do you remember when we were in the cabin with Catherine and Grant? And I'm like, yeah. What about it? Just do you remember? I'm like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that reminds me of what, what did your son say? It's like, have you seen eyes? <laughs> Some phrase like, but have you seen an eye? Like, have you really seen it though? Really? Like, I don't think you're understanding what I mean when it, what it means to see an eye. Oh, I loved, I loved his questions. And Ayla, oh my goodness. But it was great. It was like, there was a swimming hole. There was kayaks. Kayaks. There were um, biting fish, aggressive fish that bit you. Um, and volleyball, and which volleyball. we were all very bad at. And yet somehow, how did this become a thing where none of us are really athletic? And yet every morning almost we went out and played volleyball for a good long time. I think maybe we would be athletes if we had just been in the right circumstances all our lives. If we if we had lived in that cabin in Arkansas, we would have been at the Olympics this year. Anyway, all this to say, we're back. This is the Angrement Podcast. If you are starting with this episode 19 podcast, then you deserve to be confused. Shouldn't. Yeah. But for those of you who have joined us again, you already know, but this is a podcast with me, Catherine, and you. And me, Michelle. In each episode, we bring you one weird thing. One pop culture thing. And one research thing. And then we try to mix them all together in the end. Yep. We come up with a little, I forgot about that part. Oh, <laughs> Okay, cool. I mean, but I can't prepare for it. No, you can't. We don't know what the other person's going to say. So it's always to prove we don't talk about this beforehand. I literally forgot a key part of our podcast just then. (laughs) It's been a while. It has. It's been, yeah, we took a long break. We might be off our game. You have to just deal with it. We are on our game in the sense that I left notes for myself. And I know that I go first this episode. You are way more on your game than I am because I had no idea. So. So my weird thing, I think we both agree the weird thing can be the hardest thing. And I was struggling this week. Um, For a hot second, I was just going to read email messages that I get from my congressman. I wrote, I regularly write to my congress people as one should. And um, 
The only response I've ever received from those that is not a form letter was that I somehow got on the mailing list of Doug Lamborn, who's a Colorado congressperson and is nuts. Like these emails are wild, just wild. I'll get all caps, like just one step above Fox News headlines in my inbox. I'm like, what's happening? Oh, it's my congressperson. Um, And so my weird thing was going to be just reading his email because one of them I got last week, very attached to previous episodes, blowing up the moon. What is Space Force? It almost was such a word salad. I had to read it five times. And it was just like, it was like the Space Training and Readiness Command, Starcom, will be located at Peterson Space Force. Starcom will focus on training and educating space professionals, developing a new generation of space war fighters dedicated to meeting the rapidly growing challenges we face to our continued dominance in space. Continued. Okay. We will continue to dominate because we'll produce and train good war fighters at Starcom. I'm not in a sci-fi movie. This is this is real. real. These are real emails from a real elected official. Yeah. And yet that's not the weird thing. My weird thing this week came about last night when I was scrolling through Instagram as one does. I don't have good sleep hygiene. And I got an ad for something that looked... I don't know what it was that drew me to the image. And I very rarely click on Instagram ads, but I'm like, what is this? And so it was something that was clearly therapy related. Are you anxious? Yeah, of course I am. We all <laughs> yes, are. I am. I'm, al- yeah. I'm alive. I'm a human being in the world today. Yes. You've seen when I go to sleep and when I wake up, you know what it is, phone. So I was like, okay, what is this? And it immediately was like, well, let's give you a little a little quiz to see what you need from us. I love those things. I don't know why. I have to unsubscribe from so much crap because I love taking quizzes. So I took the quiz. Oh, I have anxiety and depression. They're pretty bad. Yeah, I know. Thanks. Yes. And I'm like, okay, okay. Well, what took is a quiz this to learn something new? All right. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, no, well, okay. And then it was like, okay, well, we've determined that these are your issues. Now we're going to give you a series of questions to see how familiar you already are with what Mind Bloom is. Like, okay, great. Now I'll get to know what this is. It's called Mind Bloom is what this thing is. And so I click okay and I screenshotted it because it was so, I'm falling asleep, I'm taking quizzes. And the first question they asked is, how familiar are you with the benefits of ketamine therapy for anxiety and depression? And I was like, well, not at all. Thank you very much. And basically then what I learned is that, um, long story short, hey, Michelle, you can buy ketamine on Instagram. Really? That's what I learned. I did not do it, but... um, it's very expensive. It's should like $400 we, every two months. Should we be able to buy ketamine on Instagram? I feel like that Doesn't is... Doesn't it feel like we should not be able to buy ketamine on Instagram, really? Yeah, no, that feels like a, a line somewhere that someone should be upholding. I mean, not me, but someone. Yeah. So from what I can tell, and I did a little research, that um, there are studies that say, you know, ketamine 
can be good for these things. Yeah, yeah I've and, heard of I've heard of those, but like from yeah. a doctor, not from a doctor, from an and it's much in line guy. with like psychedelics, psilocybin, things like that, LSD. But yeah, from a doctor, and even then, like, where is it decriminalized? But legit, I could send them three hundred dollars, and they would just send me a bunch of ketamine and a journal from what I could get, like a little oh. journal to write about what I'm feeling. That makes it legitimate. Ketamine, that's the therapy, that's the medicine. And so I went to Reddit to see like, is this real? And from what I can tell, it's 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 kind of janky to where people weren't happy with, they have guides, they don't call them therapists or guides, um, who are supposed to, when you take the ketamine, you're supposed to then go on Zoom with these people and they'll help you through the ketamine process. And a lot of people were like, oh, they didn't know what was going on. They weren't good with my dosage. They sent all of them and I got only one dose and I took it all, but it was for three months kind of thing. But nowhere were people like, I'm not getting ketamine off Instagram. So So, that's my weird thing is that you can, from what I can tell, as like a pretty upper middle class privileged white woman, you can buy ketamine on Instagram. That that is indeed a weird thing. I I do. I will defend myself slightly with algorithmic things by saying we know our phones are always listening to us. I did binge watch White Lotus. Have you seen? I have not seen it. I've I've seen that it is very interesting and that the creator accepts that you dislike the ending. That's what I've seen. I loved, I loved it. I loved the ending. I loved, I don't know if this is like going to be a problem or whether it's going to fall in the history of pop culture. This isn't my pop culture thing. I really, really loved White Lotus. I really loved it. How, how is it? How many episodes is it? I think it's six. And is it like, this is done or are we waiting for a season two? There is going to be a season two, but it's completely separate. It's like like the White Lotus is this hotel property And season two is going to be a different White Lotus property. All these characters are going to be gone. So this is self-contained. Then I'll watch it. I am am on a hiatus from committing to ongoing media. I watched it in two days. But ketamine does play a fairly large so maybe role your in phone it. Picked up on and they that. were constantly saying ketamine, ketamine, ketamine. And Instagram was like, all right, then we will find you got to buy it from someone. Here you go. Oh, we know you're anxious. We know you're depressed. Now we know you're open to ketamine. So that's my weird thing. Well, my weird thing starts with reading an Atlantic article by Bethany Brookshire about having a cat in her ceiling. Have you seen this article? No. Okay. So it's this is a very short little article about um this woman, Bethany Brookshire, was there was a stray cat and she decided to bring it into her house because it aligned with her ethical belief that cats should be indoors because of the damage they do to like wildlife and everything, right? So this is this is a feral cat. It was one of the like ear-tipped ones or like the um yes. so that and, and I mean she even mentions in the article like that obviously means that somebody had this cat in their possession to have that done and they did not then like put it in a shelter or adopt it out so probably this is not a very friendly cat right and like there's all this research that says that cats need to be socialized between the ages of like 
five to seven weeks and that if you miss that window that they will um, they might acclimate to a person but not to people in general like um, that you just kind of there's just a narrow window for when cats are willing to accept humans as a collective which I mean same honestly Um, (laughs) so so she puts this cat into her house in like, you know, you're supposed to lock the cat in a bathroom with just a litter box to let it acclimate to a small space. It found its way into her ceiling and wouldn't come out and would just like glare at her from her vents. Oh, no. and, and this went on for months. So she would like leave food out for it and it would come out at night for and she would, months? And she would try to like close up the spot where it was getting up real quick and it would find it like it was it was a very uh I mean you know it's an outdoor cat who has survived because they're very crafty and so it would keep finding its way back into the ceiling and so she was like asking people like what do I do and she was like and just to kind of show you how different the world is the answers range from well you obviously have to kill the cat to well you obviously have to build scaffolding all around your house so that your cat can just live its best life up in the ceiling right <laughs> Oh, that feels about right. That, those, oh, yeah. But the spoiler for this very short article, I don't feel guilty spoiling it for you. At the end of it, um, she was going to give the cat away, like to go live on like a farm or whatever. She's like, I can't, this is, but before she did that, she wanted to take it to get um, all of its veterinarian care. So that like they got the cat, they trapped it, she took it to the vet. And when the vet got in there, they sent her pictures of its mouth, which was all like abscessed and like its teeth were rotting. And they were like, this is going to be really expensive. We know that you're giving this cat up as like a farm cat. Why don't you just surrender the cat so that then like some charity can cover the veterinarian care? And because if you're just giving it away anyway, and she was like, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And I was like, I'm going to pay for it. And so she paid for the cat to have all but three teeth pulled. And to have all of these infections cleared up with antibiotics and the cat came back to her and was a loving, wonderful cat that did not run away into the ceiling anymore. That like just wanted to be on her lap and loved her. And so what, what, she, a good life lesson. what she figured out was that the cat was not hating her. The cat was just in severe pain and there's just a little throwaway line in this article that was like, in fact, I went and looked up on the cat pain scale and it it was ranked at like a seven or whatever. I was like, what? So that is what my weird thing is, is about the cat pain scale. The cat pain scale. So I went and read an article called pain assessment in companion animals, an update by Jackie Reed, Marion Scott and Andrea Nolan. And, um, initially this was my research thing, but then my, um, weird thing that I had in place of this got really, 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 really long and complex. So it became my research thing. So if they're both feeling a little researchy, I'm sorry. Um, no, I need to hear about the cat pain scale. So we have facial expression scales for human beings for pain, right? You've probably seen them. People make fun of them all the time. And then they make the, like the memes of like the, uh, different art and like the most extreme one is like the the scream painting right. or whatever right um so it's like pick where you are on the pain scale but apparently these are actually really useful for doctors giving like emergency care to figure out how where to like rank the this person's need for treatment right and so um although side note I have a, a funny story about my own child who bit all the way through his tongue like oh. 
half halfway back and halfway across. It was like a snake tongue on the side, completely, Ooh. completely across. And I took him into the ER and I have, um, I have pretty stoic children. Like, you know, they'll scream a lot when they're first hurt, but then we're like, okay, we're hurt. So what are we going to do about it? Like we're they very acclimate quickly. quickly. Yes. Yeah. We're like, okay, this is the constant pain we're in now. I guess this is what we're doing. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, they're ready. You've trained them for the world to come. No, sorry. <laughs> so I'm in the ER and you know, like, I feel like every time I, I do not go to the ER often. Like I am the parent that if I'm in the ER, this isn't, I, I am normally like, we could probably just like put some super glue on that. Right. Like, it'll be fine. Like if I'm in the ER, there is a problem. And so, um, but you know, I'm in an urban area. We had a long wait, which is the pediatric ER and I'm holding him and he's all curled up against me. And like the nurse is like, Oh buddy, did you bite your tongue? And I can just tell that she's like, that's an overreactive mom or whatever. Right. 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 She's like, can you show it to me? And so he sticks his tongue out. She goes like, oh! (laughs) (laughs) And he ended up needing, like, emergency. They had to put him under, which made me... Oh, I hated it. But he he had emergency plastic surgery to, like, put his tongue back together. So I was obviously had made the right choice to be there. But she was like, I'll I'll be right back. And she went in and got another (laughs) nurse. And cause she's filling out the chart. And then I could see she was filling out this part. This like, what's the pain level. Uh-huh. And she's like, so and she, I see her pointing to like the face that is the, the, like the lowest level. She's like, but, but look, Hey buddy, can you stick out your tongue again? And he does. <laughs> and the other nurse is like, Oh God. So, um, <laughs> so maybe not every, Oh, and then later he's laying in the bed waiting for the plastic surgeon to be there. And he's just laying there like grumpily, kind of watching TV, kind of just glaring at us all. And the nurse is like, oh, buddy, does your tongue hurt? And he goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> My God, like, are you a professional? Uh, like, what why, is- do you, why do you think we're all here, ma'am? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, oh anyway, man. All that to say that maybe the pain scale is not useful for every person, but... In general, um, that's called the Wong Baker scale, the one that we use for infants to like match their face because they can't tell us. So, you know, like it helps Ah, how how in pain they are. So that's called a grimace scale because of the way that your facial expression looks. And we have developed grimace scales for rats, mice, rabbits, horses, and cats. But the Not dogs? um, I think dogs have a different- Oh, Okay. Not a grimace scale because they always look smiley. Yeah, probably. (laughs) So this is a quote from the article. The cat scale differs from these other scales and that it was developed using naturally occurring clinical pain compared with scales developed using an applied short-lived painful stimulus in mouse, rats, and rabbits or immediate post-operative pain in the horse. And But they updated this, this pain scale for cats And it's the Glasgow Feline Composite Measure Pain Scale. And it has really improved our ability to tell when cats are in pain. So I was going to, I'm going to share my screen with you so you can see it. Yeah, let me see I know that this is a podcast and the rest of you can't see it, but you can hear Catherine react to it. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I'm seeing a bunch of illustrated cat faces. And to me, they 
all look exactly the same. Oh, but their ears, their ears ears are different. Yeah. And then down here, you're supposed to look at the muzzle. Oh, I'd be a bad veterinarian. So, so you start with questions. So you look at the cat in its cage. Is it one silent purring, meowing or crying, growling, groaning? And if it is silent purring or meowing, it gets zero points. Crying, growling, groaning gets one. Question two, is it relaxed, licking lips, restless, cowering at back of cage, tense, crouched, rigid, hunched? And there's a zero to four scale for those. Question three, is it ignoring any wound or painful area or is it paying attention to the wound? And that gets a zero or one. And then this is where the pain scale comes in. Question four, look at the following caricatures. Circle the drawing, which best depicts the cat's ear position. So if the ears are up, then that's a zero. If the ears are laid down a little bit, that's a one. And if they're laid down almost flat, that's a two. And then look at the shape of the muzzle in the following caricatures. Circle the drawing, which appears... Most like now, yeah, the muzzle goes from like full to flattened out against its face. Oh, yeah, yeah, and um, so you know, if it's full to flat, zero to two, and then um, then it's like, does it respond to stroking? Like, how does it respond to being touched? And so, there's a 20 point scale, and this facial expression helps determine the accuracy of how well they are measuring the cat's pain. And um, once she looked at that pain scale, the woman who wrote the article, she was like, oh, my cat was clearly in pain all of the time. Like it was just in so much pain. That's amazing. That cat was in pain. It didn't want to live in a ceiling. Just was trying to get away. Just don't want to be around anything when you're in pain. But I never thought about it for animals. That's so fascinating and weird. Okay. So, and it was funny because I was, before we started recording, I was showing Michelle pictures of angry cats. Okay, so pop culture, which is, what What are your feelings on Lady Gaga? Do you have strong feelings? I have, I'm very neutral. I'm very Lady Gaga neutral. I um, have had to write about her a lot for my ghostwriting gigs. And she's, she's, it's interesting to me, like just how calculated her persona is. I feel like that's fascinating. Um, I was not a fan of her American Horror Story debut, but otherwise very Lady Gaga neutral. I like you. I'm pretty neutral on Lady Gaga. I don't. Take her or leave her. Take her or leave her. Um, I think she's very talented. Like you said, I'm very interested in how she crafts her persona. And now she's an actress. I am excited about the Gucci movie, I will say, because I really like Adam Driver. And I think she's going to be good in it. But all that aside, musically, I don't have strong feelings about Lady Gaga at all. Which, then why am I talking about her? There's one song by Lady Gaga. Do you have a favorite Lady Gaga song, would you say? Poker Face is catchy. It's very catchy. I am totally neutral on Lady Gaga, except for one song, which is her song, Judas. I don't think I know that I, song. Oh, I love it. I love that song. When it came out, I don't know why. I just got obsessed with it. The music video is very good. I she does it very, I don't always like her music videos, but they're always thought provoking. Yes. 
So this, I liked the song when I heard it, then I watched the music video and I just got obsessed with that for reasons I don't even know when that was or where I was. I was probably alone somewhere going through grad school. So I was watching a lot of YouTube videos, but I watched it again and again and again. I love that song. I really love Judas. I'm not neutral on that. I'm obsessed with this song. It's her best song in my opinion and her best music video in my opinion. And it is great. So I, this is kind of old at this point. There was just a big, it's the 10th anniversary of her album, Born This Way. And so in celebration of that, they released a bunch of covers from a bunch of famous musicians. Like I think Orville Peck is on it, all these, all these people. And the first song, and this was like a month ago, but we weren't doing our podcast. And I wrote it down in my notes because I was so excited Um, the first song, like kind of the single for this album of covers they released was Judas. And basically all the artists they asked to perform on it, they kind of gave them their choice of what song they would do. And Judas, which is my favorite song by her, was performed by one of my favorite musical artists, Big Frida. And so now in the world exists a cover of Judas by Big Frida. And it is phenomenal. Don't you feel like when things that are that perfectly attuned to your interests, like it doesn't make you like, man, this has to be a like simulation because why would you make something that's so perfectly made for me? If like, what, what about all the other people in the world? Did they all get things that are perfectly made for them? I know. What are those things? Well, this is my thing. <laughs> that's I manifested it or glitched it out. This is my glitch in the matrix that I will share with you all pop culturally now. Um, I'm not going to play it or anything, but yeah, I love it. You should go listen to it. It's Judas by Big Frida on this 10th anniversary album. And if you don't know Big Frida, well, that's a whole other thing you should go and discover. Big Frida is the queen of bounce. That was almost my research thing because I was just like covering my bases. Like how long has Big Frida been around? Because I didn't know. I do know that when Treme, the show came out, I was very excited that they had a cameo on Treme. So they've been around longer than that. But basically, pop culturally, I just want to really, really recommend everyone go listen to my little piece of perfection, which is Big Frida singing Judas. I don't I have not listened to any of the other album. I don't care. I just don't well, care. Obviously, I just love fair. that so much. They weren't for you. This was for you. As a bonus, um, Big Frida does have one of the best Christmas albums ever. I really love Christmas albums. I do like a month of Christmas countdown with all my favorite Christmas albums. And that's one of the best. So also recommending that. Well, my pop culture thing, I literally only have two words on my notes, which is just the title of this. But I feel like between the two of us that we can we can spin that unless you haven't seen it yet, in which case I'm just going to be working all on my own. Okay. Have you watched Have you watched The Chair? Yes. Okay. I, okay, I assumed that you had. So, of course I have. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, speaking of things that are just made for a small sliver of people, right? Like, right. I was watching it and I was, um, I was, it was like, I, it was very anxiety inducing. I had a hard oh, time yeah. watching it. And like, I was, I was talking to my partner about it and I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to keep watching this. It's making me really anxious. And he was like, well, can you explain it to me? I'm like, no, I'm like, no, no one outside of academia, anybody outside of academia would just be like, what is happening? (laughs) So it's just such a, 
So part of what's interesting to me is that this could only be made in our current media landscape where you have these niche audiences on streaming platforms that make it worthwhile because I'm everyone that I know in academia has watched it, but only those people people to make it go on Netflix. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I was thinking about that because it's so niche. It's so niche. And I've never had like the language of academia really repeated back to me in pop, in pop culture in that way to where I don't know if you noticed it. And I, it, it's, it kind of keeps me up at night, you know, when I'm buying ketamine off the internet, this is <laughs> what keeps me up at night. Um, basically there's a scene, they like one of the, it doesn't give anything away, but one of the arching plot points, right. Is this lectureship. And she needs like the Dean to approve this lectureship. And at one point, and there's all was, these politics about like who's funding the lectureship. Right. And if you give it to this person, what does that say about the future of the department? And what if it's a celebrity so that the students are more interested? So, yeah, yeah. And that was all very spot on. Yeah. But there's this one moment where Sandra O, oh, who I love and is amazing in it. And my one complaint is it's not enough her story. But anyway, that's a whole other thing um, is talking about the lectureship. And she says the lectureship will be given by or something like that. And it's not will be given to. Oh. And that bugged me. And I'm like, they've been so good about what a lectureship is, right? Because that's not a lecture. It's not a talk you give. Right. The position. It's a paid position. And everything else made sense for that except that. And I'm like, did Sandra Oh, who's a great actress, is academia just so weird and stupid that of course an actor would be like, they will give the lecture, right? Not they will be given a lecture because it's a, it's a, it's a verb, not a noun. Um, but everything else was so spot on that that really bugged me, which was weird that I'm like, wow, academia is stupid. I actually noticed that line too. I was like, that's good. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. It was a little awkward. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't like, I guess I don't even know what to say because I don't want to like give away the plot, especially since it is fairly recently released. Um, and, yeah. you know, people I although at this point, I it seems like everybody who is in its target audience has already watched it. If I'm to judge by my Facebook feed. So I'll just say um, we're going to from here on out spoil some of the chair. OK, Come back. OK, yes. Paul, if you if you don't want the chair spoiled. Pause now. Come back in, I don't know, 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will say this show does not live and die. It's not Shyamalan in nature that spoilers would hurt it. But no, no. So um, I don't like, I I guess I'm trying to think, because like obviously the parts that were the, the hardest for me to watch were all of the things that were like, oh, we got to get rid of some professors or, you know, that. Because for those of you who don't know, I was a... Um, tenure track. Well, I was actually, I'd already gotten tenure at my uh, community college when it went through a reduction in force, which is the term they use to say like, we don't have enough money to pay people anymore. And they laid off um, about a third of the full-time faculty. Um, But they had plenty, the argument was that we had lost a bunch of students, but that's not true. In, In my meeting, which like had my, I was in a, a, a union in the I had a union rep there with me in the meeting telling me that I was being laid off as they're going through all of these very formal things, which this show does a lot of. They were like, well, there'll be plenty of adjunct positions for you, which um, 
for the, the fact that I did not flip over that table is one of the shining moments of my professionalism. I feel like I should get to put it on a resume, like as it's online. Like I was told there will be plenty of adjunct positions left while I was being fired from my tenure job. And I did not flip a table. I feel like that should be all anybody needs to know about me. That should be your cover letter for everything going forward. Yeah. Just cover it She can handle whatever. We don't need to know anything else. Because tell me, Michelle, in that meeting, was there a window? And out the window, could you see the new expensive fucking building they were building with that money? It was was on the other side. Because the old building was built in the 1950s when they had, when they thought that if you didn't let students see outside, that they would be more attentive. So there were all these lights. Um, but yes, the shiny building that was being used with the funds they couldn't afford to pay teachers with was being erected. And so, um, yeah, there you go. it was, that had to have been true, like pretty anxiety inducing, if not re-traumatizing to watch parts of this show then. Yeah. Yeah. Parts of the show, like I literally had to pause and like walk away. And I, there were several times where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to finish this. Cause it's just making me feel there was a moment, and I wish I could remember what it was, where I slammed my computer screen shut. And I wasn't watching it alone. I was watching it with my husband. We were You're like, well, we're done. And I just closed it. I was just like, no. Personal attack. Get out of here. Um, I will say, right now, I'm a little, um, I don't know if I'm frustrated. I just sent off, it's in peer review right now, an edited collection on absurdism. And it is very much, at least part, the parts of it I wrote are about, well, the absurd, we have to look at the absurd in a new way because it's very helpful when there's no reason to go on, when we're faced with existentialist, nihilist dread. Um, The absurd is a way out. This hope you can still have. And I just want to mention that a little salty that this is some like Ivy League school and the way they show that the genius professor is like finally trying is he basically gives that as a lecture and writes oh, yeah. absurdity on the board. My um, co-editor of that edit collection like texted me a screenshot of him writing absurdity on the blackboard immediately. And I was like, cool, maybe, maybe this will help with peer review. They'll think it's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've tapped into the cultural zeitgeist, right? Like this is, this is the moment for the, the subculture niche of academia. Well, I mean, who else is going to read an edited collection on absurdism? That's who you need. That's very true. That's very true. Um, so what were your overall thoughts? I, I mean, I think it was doing some interesting and smart. I think I liked the nuance. Like I liked that, they had this very stark, like intergenerational divide, which exists for real. The like, Oof, boy, howdy. Um, oh, of like we the, both you, suffered. We've like all of this stuff where like, oh, now you have to plan everything. You have called me and told me stories in which you were expected to like be a party planner because people forgot what your job at your school was. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> like, oh, well, did you, did you get the caterers for that? I'm like, I am an assistant professor who teaches students. <laughs> that is what you hired me to do. Not my job. I do not hire the caterers. Um, but yes, so I, so I really appreciated that like it tapped into that, like the intergenerational disputes, but then didn't make them so clean and neat, like that it also messed those up 
in places. Yeah. I do feel like in some, in some ways that there was just too much to pass. Like, I don't think it should have been longer. I think they were right that like this, I think it's six episodes. I think they were right about the length, but I do think that in some ways they just kind of tried to neatly be like, I guess neatly mess it up. If I hope that makes sense. Oh yeah. Right? yeah, like, yeah. like it's it like, like, Oh, we'll, we'll give you left- waves. Yeah. No makeup, makeup messiness. Yeah. 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 It had that yeah. vibe because I, my big complaint, I, I enjoyed it. And I, I really liked the um kind of background professor stereotypes. Cause I think you said they're very spot on in many ways. Um, My husband, when we were watching it pulled up, we, we kind of, we did a deep dive, like who wrote this? This is actually very accurate. And it's Amanda Peet, who's an actress. It's her first time doing a show, but she did it with someone who got a PhD or is getting a PhD. I don't from know, Harvard. From yeah. Harvard in literature. And so he pulled up the faculty page of Harvard literature. And he's like, oh, these are all one-to-ones of who these people are. <laughs> just, just like that's it. Elaine Scary, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so... It was fun. My complaint is I loved those moments. I love those characters. I really did. Although, of course, I guess it's a commentary on how it's hard to be a woman in academia and get tenure and have your life and have kids and have a husband. So maybe that was a statement in and of itself that he was the best she thought she could do. I just don't need to see you spilling all your opioids at like a kid's party. Yeah, he was. And then and then he's still the good guy after that somehow. Yeah. And like... But- I know that he was grieving, but he was being a very shitty teacher. And that bothered me. Like, I know, I don't know. As somebody who was literally like, I mean, I don't know what this says about me, but I was grading papers like while I was in a hospital waiting room from a parent who was passing away. Like, cause I just, I don't know. Like, I just feel like you, I don't know. He just didn't seem to take his responsibility to his students very seriously at all. At all. And that was like, oh, the... Again, they gave him a really happy ending, but I was like, he's doing the bare minimum and not even that at the end where they're like, now he's changed and he's working. And I'm like, what is he? <laughs> um, but I guess that is like, bad. well, and I guess it's like, a commentary about academia if you're <laughs> who has to work harder. Yeah. It was interesting to see something so correct in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And uncomfortably so, right? You're like, Ugh. But I don't know. I mean, but it's so obviously for people who already know that that's what's happening that I just don't know what work the show is going to do. Right. Like, it's, yeah, because the stuff it did with like free speech on campus was very half handed. There's a scene where they just made the students seem like an, a ma, an angry mom. I'm like, that's not true. Be kinder. No. To and then they give the speech of like, they're right. You know, like the world is burning and we're trying to protect our endowments or whatever. But like, that's just one line. Like it doesn't they yeah. don't. I, I, I don't know that whole like that was probably the central plot in the sense that it's what tied everything together but it felt threadbare like it felt like yeah it, like it they wasn't were they were developed. so afraid of coming down on one side or the other that they just weren't doing much of anything yeah I also really like vampire weekend vampire weekend it's a band you do you know the band vampire weekend I don't oh this okay I don't know if you thought this is why I also felt personally attacked by this and we can talk about who is the audience because it's us and it's not just us because we're academics all of the music not all of it but I would say a good 75% of it 
was music I listened to during grad school. It is from oh, my art, yeah. My grad school era. That means age-wise that it was totally aimed at our exact uh, age us, Yes. Because Vampire Weekend is a band that I listened to all the time in grad school. And the opening music for this show is Vampire Weekend. And then the final song, which is called Oxford Comma. So for uh-huh. an English department, that was what the show closed with is by that band. And I really like them a lot, but I have not listened to them since I w- was in grad school. So, so they were tapping into some very specific nostalgia too. Yeah. They were making me feel back to that. <laughs> anyway, I think you really will like White Lotus then though. Okay. You thought they were being nuanced with um, the professor, the newer professor character. I feel like there's a line in White Lotus I want to talk to you about. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll add it. My... Totally different things, but some of the same kind of zeitgeist. All right. Well, that's it. That's my pop culture thing. I was just like, I assume she's probably I could go on it. and on, but yeah. just do this. So. <laughs> Two words, the chair. Okay. <laughs> my research, I'm going to say I thought I was going to go a different route with this. And then I thought that would be unfair. So if I go on and on, or if it's not quite researched enough, or if it's too broad, well, I'll tell you why. But basically all my research, I knew I wanted to talk about, there was an article in Bustle called Why Gen Z and Millennials Use Elite So Differently. And I'm, you know, I feel like more, maybe it's always been this way. I don't think so. But like the generational divides seem to be getting very like tribal and like, I'm this and you're this. And I don't really enjoy that. Stresses me out. I don't care. Um, I'm squarely a millennial, as are you. I just did the math and like all my siblings are millennials. We like span the age from old millennials to young millennials. But This was very interesting to me, mainly for two reasons. The first reason is something we were talking about the last time we saw each other about like um, individualism and how that is, how speaking of teaching and academia, how that's influencing how we teach, also influencing things like canon formation. And then I was going to talk all about that, but I'm not going to go on and on about canon formation because that might need to go somewhere else. Yeah. So instead I pivoted. I'm like, that's not fair. So I pivoted, but I want to start with this article. And the article is why Gen Z and millennials use elite so differently. Did you know about this? Because I did not. How do we use elite differently? How? So when you think of elite, you think of? I think of somebody who, well, I'm trying to think about I'm trying to think, sorry, the reason I'm pausing is I'm trying to decide if elitism and elite have different meanings in my head. So I'm trying to tease out that nuance right now. Okay. Because, because the word elite can be, have positive connotations, right? Like this is- Oh, elite, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like- Either way we're thinking positive. So if we're thinking like us as millennials would think about it um, like good and bad, right? It keeps things out. It's yeah. about- gatekeeping in a lot of ways um that it is a superior experience right like if something is elite like if I'm gonna get the elite treatment at VIP right you're the Um, best but the the flip side of that is then that it is exclusive and exclusionary and 
uh, yeah. usually dripping in privilege of some kind, right? So, exactly. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's generally exactly, exactly that. I'm going to really quick just read from the article because they do a good job of doing it real quick. So to a millennial, the word elite might conjure the image of a velvet rope barring the doorway of a swanky nightclub or a gym that has fancy shampoo in the showers. Elite is excellence, Charlie 34 tells Bustle. It's the 1% of 1%, the best there is, factually, not hyperbolically. Yeah. However you want to take that. I agree with that. When I think elite, that is what I think. Elite athletes, elite scholars, things like that. But on TikTok, which is where all culture is formed now, I'm that in superhero movies, and I'm here for it. Oh, TikTok, not superhero movies so much. Um, I just heard Emerald Fennell, who did Promising Young Woman. I make this joke all the time that everything's going to be filtered through superhero movies, but she signed on to do like a Marvel movie. She's writing it. What Marvel is doing lately is no longer superhero movies. Like Marvel is like straight into like just philosophy 101. (laughs) That's fair enough. I'm excited to see what she does. I'll probably go watch that one. So, but on TikTok, elite, or this is how Gen Z is using it, is used in context as diverse as flavorful, funny. For example, one video tutorial with 10,000 likes has captured how to make an elite sandwich. It is become kind of a catch-all word to say, if I'm going to make an elite sandwich or that couch looks elite or my playlist is elite, it's not, as the 34-year-old they're quoting says, factually the best. It's their personal taste. This means that this is my favorite thing. So that was me like how to make my favorite sandwich or this looks comfy to me, or this is my playlist. It's very personal and it's about world building your own niche culture and sense of culture um, and what in the world is good. How you define that is what you like. That's elite. So anything you like is elite. Which, and I mean, that makes sense if you are creating content that instead of saying like my favorite, that you are, because like you said, you use the word world building. And I think that anytime that you are creating content, you've kind of created a tiny little microcosm to be like, this is my, this, this is the world in which I have the say over, right? So I guess your favorite could be the elite within that tiny mm-hmm. little box. Yeah. I just want to say, keeping up with the kids and all that, I found this article on a mailing list, an email list that I get every day called After School. And it's just like, here's what Gen Z is doing right now. And it's very helpful for pop culture. Anyway, I will get to my point, which is, what is the research here? Something really interesting in this article, they had a experimental sociolinguist from the University of Michigan, Kelly Elizabeth Wright, and she said, what we see happening with immaculate, it's another word people are using in this way, and elite is a process known as semantic intensity. And we use semantic intensity to elevate our descriptions of things because of how we feel about them, like saying share is ageless or pizza is sacred. That's what she said. And she says, if you're seeing elite everywhere, it's likely because Gen Z is simply excited to have a word that they collectively feel is fulfilling to use. And the younger generations perhaps reaching a semantic ceiling here 
with these intensified words because they seek to mark the things that get them to add their critical gaze to the conversation, she adds. So while their use of these words might not snag your attention or they might, you might think they're kind of awkward, um, it's more intentional than it sounds, right? So it's a way, it's a semantic ceiling thing where we go, this is the greatest of all time. I don't know what a millennial semantic ceiling would be. I'm sure we have them. Well, you just mentioned the like great, greatest of all time. I mean, is it is go, is calling things the goat? Is that millennial? That feels millennial to me. Yeah, I feel like goat, and that would be a semantic ceiling. Although, because we are millennials, I suppose we mean it pretty literally. Like, yeah, Simone Biles is goat. Things like that. It doesn't get tossed around too much. But that made me very interested in other TikToks I have been seeing and other articles about how language changes because language changes. Um, there are a lot of good TikToks going around where someone tells a story about a gym or something. And then there's like the moral of the story is that you understand they, them pronouns because they yeah. just say they the whole time. So that's an interesting way I'm finding um, on TikTok where people are discussing linguistic changes. And um, so that's where I want my research to kind of end up here. It's, it opened the door. I've been seeing so many not even with words, but with emojis and punctuation and how that's changing very quickly. So like, for example, Michelle, if you were going to be laughing in a text and you wanted to convey that, we should no longer do a crying till I laugh. I saw, I saw that that marks us as we are marked. We are marked and I'm touched. You send a skull because you're dead. Um, But then I saw a really funny article in the guardian, which I'll link to which was basically um, called don't put a happy face in your texts. And it's kind of a conversation. It's like, here's a smiley face emoji, um, meaning colossally insulting in every conceivable way. What? But it's just a friendly smile. No, it isn't. The smiley face emoji is a weapon of sheer blunt force trauma. Nothing says I hate you more than a smiley face emoji. (laughs) Like I'll link to it, but the conversation goes on with like, no, that's I'm happy. You're a monster. <laughs> oh, but that's is what I mean. Well, you must be a boomer. I'm not a boomer. I have a I have a side part. I wear skinny jeans. And they're like, we don't care. Get out of here, old person. So smiley faces are out. And then I saw a very cool TikTok about the ampersand. Everyone should be on TikTok. It's so educational. Do you know about ampersands? What about ampersands? I have strong feelings about ampersands. <laughs> <laughs> this is not about their usage. Okay. It's about their, their meaning. History. Oh, their history. It's okay. Their history. I saw this TikTok and did not believe it and actually researched it. And this is true that the ampersand, basically the ampersand, which is the and symbol, mm-hmm. in case anyone doesn't know or is forgetting, it was the 27th letter of the alphabet at one time. There was another letter of the alphabet and it was the ampersand and it came after Z. Okay. And was it called ampersand when it was. Oh, no, oh I'm getting ahead. <laughs> um, it was called and. And so you would say, I think, let me see if I'm getting this right. Um, it came after Z. And so in like the alphabet song, which is not the same alphabet song we sing now, but right. it is an alphabet song, you would say Z and and. Z so and X, and. Y, Z, and, 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 that. and, and, okay. and, and, um, and so they would start instead of saying, and, and, cause that's awkward. They would say Z per se, and, 
And that morphed to per se and, which morphed into ampersand, just because people were hearing it. It had nothing to do with how it was written because it was and. And you'd say per se, which means, you know, after and. So Z and and, Z per se and, per se and, ampersand. And um, the symbol itself is a ligature of E and T, which then if you think about it, it makes sense for words like et cetera, which I thought was very cool. Now you have strong feelings about the ampersand. I feel like we need to pause and figure this out. I just I, like, so I get a lot of um, requests from ghostwriting clients that it will have like, oh, use this phrase and it'll be a phrase with an ampersand in it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to write out the word and like, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't aesthetically like them in like headings. Um, I'm okay with them in like product names. Like I think, I don't know, but they bother me when it's like supposed to be. Like stylistically, like when it's a logo or a name. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way it looks, but I'm with you. I never use them and it would bother me to have it in like a formal heading or something. It bothers me to type it as part of a sentence in particular. Like I just, like, that feels I like nails like that. on that chalkboard. Yeah. Yes. It's exactly. It's the same feeling like, um, right. And, but while we're paused from the, from the main story, I remember reading, this was a while back and I don't know if it's still, cause I don't, I don't hear it that often anymore, but there was a point where a lot of, and at the time I was like, finishing grad school. And this was something that college age students were doing. So people who were like, you know, a half generation, like, the, like not that much younger than us. Right. We're saying slash in a, like, like this slash You're this. Reading it. Ooh. Um, and, and there was a discussion about how they had essentially created a new coordinating conjunction, which um, so coordinating conjunctions are the fanboys for and nor, but, or yet so. And there's only seven of them and there has only been seven of them for a very long time. And um, so there was this idea that they were kind of creating because slash it's sort of meant and, but it's sort of meant or, but it, uh, it also meant something. In, it, it wasn't just and or it was like, um, this is my, this is my couch slash bed meant like almost a convertible fluidity within it. Yeah. 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 So it was kind of like, cause it's not my couch or my bed. It is my, and it's not, it is, it's not just my couch and my bed. It's my couch slash bed. Right. And so yeah. they were using the word slash in a way that um, was essentially creating a new coordinating conjunction, but I don't know. if That's so cool. I, that should stick. I have more to say about the slash. The Vergule, which is what it's called. <laughs> um, oh, that's cool. So then I saw another TikTok video, basically, which was how about this person a year ago was fine with exclamation points and would use exclamation points. But now they're like, I, that, that's, that, I'm a monster if I do that. I have, I'm wearing like khaki pants. I'm a 72-year-old father. Now the thing to do is you put a space. It's not that um, exclamation points are out. It's that apparently you should leave a space. So like, I'm so excited to see you. Space exclamation point. And that makes it okay. And you're not desperate. I don't understand that. But no, I am. I'm old. I'm old. So that, but they, they ended that TikTok by screaming, how are there trends in punctuation? Someone explain it to me. I'm like, well, I bet there is a history to punctuation and trends in punctuation. That seems like there's trends in everything. So I found 
a very good, and I'll try to keep this quick. I don't know how much you know about the history of um, punctuation. I did not. And I will say that um, it has so much to do with orality and writing and teaching. It's all about teaching. I'm really interested in moves from when teaching you were supposed to learn to read aloud versus when you're supposed to read in your head, which is a very German thing. But um, basically, punctuation, do you know when punctuation starts that we know of? I know that we started like um, trying to standardize it when we moved to movable press or to movable type because uh, we didn't, it was very upsetting that suddenly all kinds of people were going to have access to the ability to share information instead of just the few people that we had granted access to that. Right. And so the, one of the ways to gatekeep was to standardize punctuation and spelling so that we could prove who's reading, whose writing was worth reading and whose wasn't not because there were yeah. actually any rules for it, but because by creating rules, we could then gatekeep whose work was considered valid or not. Yep. I found a wonderful resource called englishproject.org and it tells me punctuation is varied over time and space. And to talk about it, it's best to find a point at which to start. Um, and they started with the Greeks and the Romans because the Romans copied everything from the Greeks. Fun fact, which I do like, the only thing they did not copy is concrete. The Romans invented concrete. Legitimately on their own. I think I've talked about this before because I'm obsessed with it. The concrete that Romans have, they've tested it and it's insanely strong, stronger than a lot of concrete we have today. And they think it was because of the volcanic ash. But then I teach architecture students because Greek and Roman architecture can start to look alike. If it has a dome, then it's Roman because you have to have concrete to create domes. Oh, did and then I make them all chant with me. Dome is Rome. Dome is Rome. And they do good on their test. But um, anyway, so the Greeks and Romans had had it. And the reason they did was for teaching, because when you read aloud, they were worried that um, their students would know how to, where to stop, where to start, things like that. And that was kind of fine and good. And then it really took off punctuation as we know it in the Western world in the English language or Latin to English um, is someone named St. Jerome. And so about 50 years before the English language reached what we now know as Britain in the year 400, Jerome produced the first complete translation of the Bible into Latin. And so to ensure that it would be read correctly aloud, he encouraged those who copied his Bible to adopt a practice used by the education of Roman schoolboys. And so classical Roman script had no word breaks and no small letters. And so what you got was an uninterrupted stream of capitalized letters, which is hard to read aloud. And um, the schoolmasters in Greece and Rome would break the letters into sections and subsections, which was referred to in Latin, please, I don't have good Latin pronunciation, was per cola et camada, into colons and columns, into colons and commas. So those were the first ones. Then the Christian monks found those breaks useful, copied them like the Romans copied them. And he was satisfied, Jerome, that the Bible could be read out in a standardized, intelligible way. And then that Latin that that Bible was in remained the Latin of the church and therefore most of the Western world the next thousand and more years. Then Latin started evolving right into Italian and Spanish and French and all the Roman, the Romance languages. Um, and the monks 
that were copying the Bible were content with the punctuation as he had it. And in the British Isles, however, Jerome's Bible arrived in Ireland in the year 500. And as conversion to Christianity proceeded there, the Celtic monks couldn't master Latin. They had a lot of trouble with it. Celtic monks struggle with it. They didn't know where words started and ended. And so then they put the punctus, the point, um, between words. And you see that in like a lot of medieval mm-hmm. manuscripts and stuff where there's words in between, I mean, dots in between everything. And so basically a lot of other people had that same struggle, the dots, the punctuation, the punctum became more and more popular. And then one day, one monk somewhere, we don't know, dispensed with the dot between words, inventing the greatest punctuation mark of all, according to this website, the word space. So they're finally, do nothing, no marks, just space between words. Hooray. I agree. Um, And that was that was very popular. People loved being able to have spaces in between words. And that was like around at the end of the eighth century. And it was, that's how things were. There was not a lot of developments in punctuation um, and a dot. They would then start to put a dot over the word or under the word. It would mean different things. It wasn't a line like we have it today. They would have things above the word, below the word, because they were handwriting everything. Um and so then the printing press came and we couldn't do that anymore. And we had to make the line so we could have blocks of text. And of course, movable type and Gutenberg were very, very important to the printing press. Really, Gutenberg invented the hyphen. That was his big thing. And fun fact, no one has ever used in print a hyphen as much as he did. He invented it and he used it the most. Because it was elite. <laughs> exactly. It was elite. This is my elite punctuation. I hate hyphens. I can't figure them out. I use, I just use like parentheses all wrong. Anyway, um, so thanks Gutenberg. My my favorite punctuation mark is the M dash. I love, I love, I love an M dash. I just, I love that you have a favorite punctuation mark. Mine is- I have a favorite definitely. punctuation mark? Mine's a semicolon. Oh, I do, I do like a semicolon, but um, they're easy to overuse. Oh Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yep. I, I use them too much. Anyway, basically, um, in 1476, we get William Caxton, who didn't want to place the comma dot above words because it was very hard and movable pressed to go above the line. And he solved that by placing a stroke between words to act as a comma. And the monks called that mark a virgula, which meant twig. And the name remains the French word for comma, but that slash, like you were talking about, is called a virgule. And I'm obsessed with virgules. If anyone wants to know about that, a lot of my PhD dissertation was about the virgule. And I tried to come up with some theoretical concept of virguleanness, and it was it was a mess. But then the comma as we know it came basically from someone named Aldous of Mantua in Venice in the 1490s. He also made the semicolon. Hooray. And two punctuation marks. That's a little greedy. I know. Right. I mean, the father of the printing press just needed a hyphen, sir, calm down. (laughs) So basically in an extremely judgy tone, this article concludes with, and I quote, serious modern punctuators do not invent punctuation marks. They apply them with rigor and style. Disagree. They write the guidebooks. We follow them. Disagree. 
I disagree as well. Disagree so. They also then say they kind of go against it. The punctuation is a communal thing. A use has to be agreed upon by a group, but it doesn't have to be agreed upon by everyone. And basically punctuation marks become symbols as they get further and further from prose and poetry. The exclamation demonstrates that. Exclamation marks have also been called shrieks or screamers, which makes sense because you're, hey, Um, a bang, a boing, a gasper, a pling, a slammer, and a Christer have all been names that have been used for exclamation points. Did you know it's also a mathematical symbol? I don't think I did know it was a mathematical symbol. What does it mean in mathematics? I did not know that. So the exclamation is used as a mathematical symbol to indicate the multiplication of a descending sequence of natural numbers. So like five times, four times, three times, two times, one? Basically... They have, I don't, I'm so bad at math. Um, but what they have is 52 exclamation point equals 52 times 51 times 50 times 49. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and if you're reading mathematical formulas out loud like that, you would not say 52 exclamation point like I just did. You would say 52 factorial or 52 shriek I, or 52 I bang. remember factorial. That's a thing that I learned factorial. once a time. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. wish they were called shrieks though. 52 yeah. shriek. 52 shriek. So um, basically then they, they were like really the only big advancements happening in punctuation or symbols associated with punctuations is that a lot of symbols typically associated with computer coding are beginning to be used to convey meaning in text, especially on the internet. Um, so for example, if a writer wants to emphasis, but is unable to change the style, they can't bold it, they can't underline it, they can't italicize it, they are can use tildes around it. And that's becoming really popular. They link to like a lot of articles that are using tildes now on BuzzFeed and things. Um, so I thought that's interesting that a lot of computer coding symbols are starting to make their way more into popular punctuation. And basically, that was my long-winded answer to that TikTok that said, how are there trends in punctuation? Someone yeah, well, of it course there's me. trends in punctuation. Yeah. Yeah, okay. no, and I, I I don't understand why I can't use the smiley face with the tears to show that I'm laughing with somebody who's younger, but I respect, I mean, like, if I'm communicating with them enough, I, I'll, I'll try, you know, I'll pick up yeah. the the trends, but as long as I'm talking to other old people, I feel like I can keep using the punctuation marks we understand. I mean, you also do use periods like, like a murderer. <laughs> I do properly punctuate all of my text messages. But even like, that, right? Isn't that crazy that even that sometimes I will be like, Michelle's mad. I'm like, no, she's good at punctuation. <laughs> it's a full stop. No, I'm only mad when there's not punctuation marks. Cause that means I was typing so fast that I could like, that's how we know that's how we know. So yeah. Um, I'll put links to that in our show notes, but also if anyone does want to know why you can't use things or what not to use, I do recommend after school very much. It's a fun little newsletter that you get emailed to every day that tells you what's happening with the kids. Tells you how to talk to the kids. Talk to the kids. Speaking of talking to the kids, I, I had posted this, um, the quotes from my daughter right right before we, so you might not have seen them yet. But today we're in the car 
And she's telling me about some Roblox game and she's going on and on and on, but she keeps pausing to make sure that I understand what she's saying, because I often do not understand what she's talking about when she's talking about Roblox or Minecraft. Cause I just am not, it's just not my thing. And so she's talking and she's like, so it's really cool because now I can be an admin and she's like, wait, do you know what an admin is? I'm like, yes, I know what an admin is. Like I'm an admin of like 4,000 different Facebook groups, you know, like, yes, yeah. I know what an admin is. <laughs> And she said, okay, I just, I never know what you know. And then she's going a few more minutes. She's like, but then if that happens, you're stuck in first person. Wait, do you know what first person is? I'm like, I'm an English professor. Yes, do I not quote the person. ancient magic to me, which I was there when it was written. So just, I don't know, just those generational gaps and those knowledge gaps. And how do you know who knows what is? Right? Because there are things she knows, obviously, that you're like, I don't know what that is. So why would you know others? <laughs> right. Like, how do you know which things you know? So Okay. What is your, let's do, yeah. What's okay. your, which was a weird thing, right? So I'm going to start with the part that was a weird thing. And then I will explain why I couldn't leave it as a weird thing. And then, then we're going to go for a little ride. All right. So. Um, my weird thing initially was this article from the Guardian about hummingbirds, and they found that there is several female hummingbirds that, as juveniles, look like male hummingbirds, and then as they get older, the it's so here's a quote: every female and male start out looking like the adult males. Then, as they age, about twenty percent of the females keep that plumage. And then 80% shift onto the drab plumage that we're used to seeing in female hummingbirds. So normally in a lot of bird species, the males are very colorful and the females are very drab. And we have all these theories about why that is. It have to do with like evolution. And I remember being taught when I was a kid that it's like, because females have to hide to protect their babies and the males don't have to. And like, I, I don't know that any oh, of that. Oh, that's fun. That, that yeah. really will implant itself into your brain mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Yes. how you carry yourself to the world, huh? Just hide to protect your babies. Um, Just make you yourself small. Take up as little room as possible. If you could you. fit in a teeny little bird's nest, great. Don't be very just quiet. Shh. Not a pee. Get you your babies. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, man. It's generally believed that, you know, that ornamental flashy plumage in males has evolved as a function or competition for mates, right? That that like the the flashier you are, the more that you'll get to spread your bird seed and have baby birds, right? Um, But in this case, most of the females were not retaining that colorful plumage when they were sexually mature. So the theory that they had anything to do with sexual attractiveness doesn't hold. So the theory that they think is that it the female the juvenile birds are developing male characteristics to keep from being harassed by male hummingbirds and then as they sexually mature they get the more drab appearances so that they can then sexually reproduce with the male hummingbirds but they have oh, wow. like evolutionarily developed appearances of male hummingbirds to keep themselves from being harassed by other male hummingbirds so that was just going to be my oh. weird thing and I was just going to end it there but no, my, don't. Brain, my brain was like, you listened to a podcast that was about birds and feathers. And I was like, when, what? And I could, it, like, there was just like this, like, like itching, scratching sound. I'm like, no, yeah. it was a podcast about birds and their feathers. And it's important here. And I was like, no brain, no, we've already got our three things. Just leave it. And and I, I couldn't. And Drop so I it. 
way too long, like going through all of my old podcasts to be like, was it this American life? <laughs> was it this? Was it all I could remember was birds and feathers and that it was a podcast. That's it. That's all I had. And I'm so, sure that would be great on Google. Bird feather podcast. Go. You should have seen, but, but I found it. I'm very impressed and not surprised. It was from 2019. It was a radio lab episode called the beauty puzzle. So this is something I listened to two years ago. Um, I will send the link so you can have the entire thing. And they, I love it when podcasts give me transcripts. So I got to reread the whole transcript to make sure I remembered the things. Cause once I saw it, I like it all started coming back to me. So this is a positively fascinating podcast that starts with the fact Catherine, what percentage of birds do you think have penises? Oh. Not, not like of all birds, like of the males of the species. What percentage of birds do you think have penises? So what, so A, I guess um, I haven't thought much about it. And I am now learning that birds do have penises, which I just never thought about. But that makes sense. Um and so the question isn't how many birds have penises. It's how many male birds what have What percentage penises. of bird species do the, oh. are there penises in that species? I, I feel trapped and I feel like my answer, if there wasn't a lead up would be a hundred percent. So I, I mean, like I, I hadn't put much thought into it, but I grew up on a farm and um, the birds that I most saw in reproduction were ducks and ducks do have <gasps> ducks penises. do have penises ducks have creepy penises they're scary yeah. that's why i remember them <laughs> i also learned that duck penises can be longer than the duck so no. like, it like curls up it comes out during yeah. mating so like they 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 saw they had, there was a duck that was only like 40 centimeters long and it had a 43 centimeter long penis so pretty pretty interesting i guess I'll, I'll leave it that anyway so Very um, interesting so if you would ask me i'd be like well ducks have penises and ducks are birds so birds have penises but it is very rare for a bird to have a penis okay um, i feel like my worldview is more in line now i just don't only maybe because i was so scarred by duck penises i don't want to think about other bird penises well you don't have to because only three percent of bird species have penises here's what's fascinating that it's not zero or 100 right? Oh no, no, this is going to get, but it's just 3%. It's going to get so, it's going to get so wild. You're not ready. You're not ready for what's about to happen. So I am not, you're I'm not ready. I'm still reeling from three things back and, and also being like, ah, duck penis. Okay. So only 3% of birds have penises. So, but we know that evolutionarily they used to have penises because they oh. evolved, they evolved from they evolved what <laughs> you're right. I wasn't ready. Okay. Keep going. So there's been a question of what happened to all the birds' penises. Why <laughs> evolutionarily? Where are the penises? Where are they? So um, we know, we know, we have discovered, I found a Smithsonian um, Magazine article that I will also link to. We have discovered the genetic answer to what happened to the penises. Ooh. There is um, a, all the all birds still have the genetic capability to produce a penis, but there is cell death that occurs because of a chemical signal during embryonic 
like during embryonic growth that causes cell death to kill off the cells that would create a penis. And scientists have been able to artificially block that chemical signal to trigger that cell death, to block the chemical that does trigger the cell death in order to produce chickens with fully formed penises. And they have also reversed the process. I'm so tickled that there's a lab somewhere where we're like, we will make these chickens have penises. (laughs) They have also reversed the process to block the signal in ducks and produce ducks that do not have penises. That's amazing. So it's just genetically, it's something that you can tick on or off in that way. And for 97% of bird species, evolution has told them. Evolutionarily, it is not good to have a penis. So that's what I'm hearing. That is that is what 97% of bird species have determined at some point, right? Um Except and ducks. But what about ducks? Not ducks though. Have Why you not? ever watched ducks mate? No. It is it's it's incredibly violent. Like the they they like rip the feathers off the back of the female duck. She's often trying to throw them off. Like it is terrible to watch, which I'm only telling you because so they they came up with some theories, right? They were like, why would these, why would this happen? Why would they evolutionarily not have penises? So they were like, maybe it's to prevent STDs, that you know, a penis causes more STDs to come than just what they have instead is basically just like a hole that has to be placed together. So that like um, during reproduction to deliver the sperm. Right. And so that maybe without a penis to go in and out of that hole, you would have fewer STD transmissions, but then they didn't find any link for that. So that they are like, that's probably not it. And then they were like, well, maybe they're too heavy and they got rid of them because they need to fly, but ducks fly all the time and they have very long penises. So that doesn't seem to be it either. So it's just like some aerodynamic Phelpsian like thing. Like we need to go fast. No penis. Not it. Not it. The prevailing theory, according to the people in this radio lab podcast called The Beauty Puzzle, is that it was about female choice against males being able to control reproduction because a penis, especially the type of penis that ducks have, which makes us think that that would be the type of penis that a lot of birds would have had had this genetic code been turned on, is particularly good at violent sex, at like unwanted come up and inseminate this female against her will. Um, And we have seen this in other species. So uh, male bedbugs in particular have very violent sexual habits. So they stab the female bedbug directly in the abdomen to inseminate her. And sometimes they mess up and stab other males and it it actually kills them. And so like the female bedbug is left with like an open wound whenever there's reproduction and it's really dangerous for her. Like it can cause infection. Like, so the act of reproduction is very dangerous for the female bedbug because of the delivery method for the sperm into the abdomen. And um, that it's called traumatic insemination and it's not just in bedbugs. And there's a scholarly debate about why that would have had evolutionary development. Like why would some animals have traumatic insemination versus more gentler ways to um, inseminate. And so um, this is hard to prove. This is not, this is not proven, but, and one of the reasons that it's hard to prove is because penises don't have bones. So they're soft tissue, so they don't fossilize. So we can't look back at the fossil record to see like when this happened or how habits changed around it. 
But the evidence suggests that in birds, the female preferences for mating have changed male birds over time. And it's not just in their um, not having penises. It's also in the way that they look. So like, instead of thinking of female birds being demure so that they can protect their babies, probably a more accurate way to think of it is, is the male birds that best matched the female birds aesthetic choices were the ones who were most likely to mate. So basically birds are female bird art Uh, over time. uh, So like, for instance, there's a species of bird that like the females will only mate with the males that are a particular shade of blue and the males that aren't that shade of blue just don't get they don't get to have any babies. And so like, there's more and more and more of that particular shade of blue because that is what the females are choosing. Um, there's also a bower bird that has to build these like tall towers in order to attract. But if you look at the way that the, the mating thing, cause then the, they like do these little dances and they bring each other little trinkets. The way that the bower is constructed is so that if the male were to try to come up and mate with the female, she can always just fly away. And so she has basically forced the bowerbird to create a tower to protect her from unwanted sex until she has chosen to allow for the sex. I mean, if we're refiguring things we learned as children and how now it's the inverse of what you were taught as the bird to hide yourself, that could have vast implications for Rapunzel stories. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just thinking. She gets to choose who climbs her hair, maybe. Like maybe it's about... Reproductive choice, man. No, <laughs> I don't think I can sell that. That's amazing. Right? A Rapunzel story that is about yeah. reproductive choice for sure. Yeah. So, um, and then, so a lot of people are like, oh, but this isn't, that's not survival of the fittest. That's not Darwinian. Um, so in this uh, podcast. Hello, get a wheelchair. It's just not male survival of the fittest, right? And. Darwin did say this. They, it's just kind of been erased from history. So they went back and they found a quote from Darwin that said that like stripes and dots, he was describing like different different physical features on animals, have, quote, all been indirectly gained through the influence of love, jealousy, through the appreciation of the beautiful and through the appreciation of a choice. So that like basically the way that, including humans, probably the way that we look is representative of reproductive choices that have been made along the way in that isn't always about fit that is also about just like aesthetics and um and beauty and it's not elite it's elite (laughs) (laughs) and for the vast majority of birds that probably included losing their penises because the female birds were like no thank you no thank you to this violent unwanted sex i would i am only going to take gentle sex on my own terms. I love that. I love that. Thank you for that journey. My mind is (laughs) explode, explode, explode. It's amazing. And I love it. And oh man, I'm putting that in my back pocket to tell everyone. I love fun animal facts. And that's the most fun I've ever heard. That beats hyena clitorises for me which I won't go into. Just go look it up. They're very interesting. (laughs) Kind of the inverse of bird penises. I will say hyena clitorises. Hyena clitorises are the inverses of bird penises. Yeah. 
we're doing SAT prep. This is to this. This, this, this is to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, might have done better on the SAT then. time it is since I've re-remembered yes so what, let's what, wrap it all up time to wrap it up what so let's recap okay For weird we things had, we had um you can buy ketamine on Instagram under the under the guise of it is something called mind bloom and it is therapeutic there is a pain scale for cats then we talked about the cover of Lady Gaga's best song Judas by Big Frida and we talked about the chair. I don't know what we talked about about the chair, but we talked about the chair. We talked about the chair. I, I feel like that's a very good gap of anything we want to connect we, with. We can, they can do anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, then my research was a roundabout way of talking about punctuation trends and histories through TikTok and such and the word elite. And I talked about why most birds don't have penises. Boy, did you. Boy, howdy. That was great. Um, okay. I do feel I'm going to making choices, choices and trends and how things go. Learning, learning things about the world and that slowly changing things. That's so big. Um, there seems to be something about how male birds look and we had that wrong and then how the cats look that misunderstanding of misunderstanding. the cat was a bad cat yeah 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 he needed to go to a farm but the cat was just in pain and like we have all these preconceived notions about female birds but no they just don't want to be forced into painful unwanted sex and and misunderstanding is big in the punctuation and language changes like you know yeah yeah just that I say this word and it's not what you you thought I think I mean yeah and those I like the other things like how they slowly got the pain scale how that was evolved and how it changed for cats and got better the language thing happens usually pretty slowly and it's really not always but it's very interesting takes time for those changes to set in <laughs> I feel rusty um I mean there's plenty of misunderstandings in the chair for sure oh yeah oh so, yeah especially like the if, if we're talking about the Hitler salute and like what he was trying to do and so I mean we could definitely tie that in with that misunderstanding yeah, but what you're saying versus what's being heard in a way Especially um, since most of the people who were outraged about it weren't even in the class. They just saw the little video clip and yeah. Yeah. Cause that was a very interesting moment where you think, oh, he does that. This, this lecture is going to crash and burn the students in that right there. And then are going to be mad at him and they seem like they are, but then he goes into what I assume the show wants to, th- to think is a brilliant lecture that they all yeah. get very engaged with. And so that, where you think it's going to be, he's attacked then, but actually everyone in that classroom was so engaged and they, they knew what he meant, Yeah. but just one person let it out and out of context, memed his, his Nazi sleep was not good. Um, 
So there seems to be, yeah, preconceived notions, saying things that aren't heard in the same way, that miscommunication in between. Um, that really then only leaves, I mean, my ketamine thing was definitely that. I was shocked. I'm like, okay, this is going to be something about online therapy. It's a meditation. Sell me, like yeah. a meditation app or yeah, something like that. And then all of a sudden it was like, how familiar are you with ketamine therapy? <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have uh, been misidentified. So that's definitely, I don't know if I'd say it was a miscommunication, but I feel like when when the quiz had a whole section to be like, let's see how familiar you are with this now. They knew it was a kind of slow draw yeah, in. Yeah, because if they just started with that, if they'd just been like, ketamine for you, you never would have clicked on it, right? But no, like- No, yeah. I would not have. Um, so yeah, that's like intentional use of a misunderstanding. Like, I mean, it's basically subterfuge, right? Like, yeah. So then we have the cover of Judas, which I don't know the song very well. So I mean, we like, how, how deep do I want to go? Do I want to go into what, like who Judas is? Um, although that wasn't a miscommunication. He, well, if you've seen Jesus Christ, superstar, that's very interesting about Judas isn't a bad guy. He often isn't a bad guy. He was just playing a role that was laid out for him and he didn't have any free will. <laughs> no. Um, well, there's something interesting about cover songs that are being, this was not a miscommunication though. This was a banger and it was great. Uh, that one really throws... I feel like that throws, that's a hard one. That's a spanner in the works. The cover of Lady Gaga's Judas. She gets stoned to death at the end of the music video, if that's helpful. Would you say that, that is the cover better than the original? Yes. Yes. I'm trying to see if there's something about that then. <gasps> I think there is, Maybe. It's very hard, I think, for a cover to be better than the original or any version, right? There's a really good reading I always do when I'm teaching sound art about how no matter what the first version of like a song you hear is what it usually tends to be your favorite. Yeah. And that's what you hear the most. And um, if there's a mistake in the recording, then you expect that and you grow to like it because that's what you hear again and again. And then I feel that's kind of a dated reading that was about cassettes and records. And I feel like less and less because you can get music from so many places being so set on this is the way I heard it. Cause you're not maybe listening to the same, this a same song from the same place again. And again, you're hearing it from all different venues. You'll go watch it on YouTube. You'll listen to it on Spotify. You'll see it somewhere else. And it might be different versions all the time. I feel like that idea is slowly dying out a little that the first one you hear is going to be the one you like best. Which, I, which fits very well with like the punctuation mark being set because like, look how quickly, like what an emoji means changes or what, how yeah. like now you need a space before your exclamation point to make it okay. Like those are very good. So like that things are not set 
And I think that fits with the, the, what our understanding of birds and the reason that their colors are the way that they are is like our understanding is not set. Nothing's Um, set. Is that, is that the fortune cookie? Things are not set. Or is that too broad? Well, okay. So does it work for the pain scale for cats, right? Like we didn't understand you know, once we had a better understanding of things. I think it needs a little bit, like things are not set so. Yeah, it needs some finessing. Things are not set. I don't want to go so far as to be like, so just create your own reality right. around no, you. Not, not Whatever that. you want is. Because these are still, all of these things, all of these examples that we're talking about demand collective understanding and Uh, Like in the case of the bird thing, like scientific evidence, like you can't just make up a new theory and be like, well, that's it now. Like you still have to like try to figure it out through. I mean, they, they went in and gave those chickens penises. Like they have to. Yes. If you're going to create your own reality, well, you're not creating your own reality because there was an objective, perhaps truth to the penis thing. But, but the um, article about the history of punctuations, which was so judgy and be like, no, no punctuations still was like punctuation is a collective thing and it has to be agreed upon by an audience. The audience can be different sizes. And I feel like that's turning into then so not a whole world that reads one language or only reads some books, but like ages and things. Well, and then like in the chair, when he was doing it for that specific audience, it worked out really well. But when that clip got taken to a different audience, so some, I think maybe the fortune cookie is like the audience, the audience does the determining. So determine your audience, right? <gasps> that's it. Oh, that's beautifully said, Michelle. Say it again. The audience does the determining. So determine your audience. I think that's the best one we've ever had because you hit the nail on the head and you said it so poetically. Ooh, perfect. And it really does fit all of them. Like it really, it, it really does. does. It does. Like usually there's, there's a one or two that I'm like, eh, we're kind of stretching a bit, but I, I, I feel this one does it. This one's Everyone awful. is perfect. Everyone is, it fits everything perfectly. And I love it. Done and dusted. I will say, look, Everyone, you can go now, but not really. I do have one fun fact that I wanted to slip in and then I forgot um, when I was learning about the history of punctuation that most every country or most every language, I mean, says library like biblioteca or bibliotech or some iteration of bibliotech, except for like English, really, which is library. Almost every other language, every other language we know about, almost, at least very Western languages, um, bibliotheque. And do you know why that difference is? Why English-speaking countries call it libraries? Library refers to librarians, the people who create and work with the books and the knowledge. Bibliotheque, bibliotheque, all the iterations of it, is the place. It's books on it's books on shelves. It's where the books are. But a library is where the keepers and creators of the knowledge are. I'm rambling now, but I just thought that was interesting. That the difference is is it a place where books are or is it a place where librarians are? The people. Words are cool and history. Words are so cool. cool. I could just talk about words all night long. 
people are cool and you're cool. Thank you, Michelle. I missed this a lot. I'm really glad we're back. This is a lot of fun. Next episode is 20. And don't forget, please send us some grab bags. Have we gotten any grab bags? I I, I didn't check in the last (laughs) week, but. But no, send us your grab bags, everybody, because we're back. And it's definitely not going to be episode 20, but maybe some episode will be an all grab bag episode. Angrymentpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Write it. You can record it. You can Zoom us, whatever you want to do. We'll make it happen. All right. Good night. Bye. Goodbye, everybody.